If you would take out the Word of God and turn to Mark chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 29. And as you find our passage for the day, I'll remind you now is the time when our kids who are in Kids Bridge go back. So if you are a Kids Bridge kid uh, between third and fifth grade, uh, our leaders are in the back. Uh, the Whiteheads are back there. They're going to lead Kids Bridge today. And they're waiting for you, uh, third through fifth grade. Remember, this is a bridge into uh, worship. We believe that middle school age uh, young adults should uh, be able to be in the service and worship uh, with the church. And uh, we actually encourage kids to be in the, the service. We want our children to experience what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. People of all ages uh, treasuring Christ together. And this is just a bridge to help them uh, get to that point from Journey Kids or Ashland Kids now uh, to the worship service. And they're going to learn about what it means to hear the preaching of God's Word, what the ordinances are, the different elements of the service. They walk through those things with them each week. Also, if you've been a guest over the last, I guess, month or so, let me encourage you to get connected um, there's a lot going on here, more than I even know. Uh, there were things this week and people were telling me, are you going to this? And I was like, well, when did we plan that? I had no idea that was going on. Uh, and so it's so important for you to get plugged in to a church family. I know the last year has um, caused uh, disruption in a lot of our lives as Christians. Some of us are trying to find our place again in community. Uh, and there's plenty of ways to get plugged in here. We have a connect card back in our connect area. You'll see the essential hubs and all of the things that we stand for back there. And then there's a circle table. We have gifts for you. Uh, and we want to help you get plugged into the life of our church. And let me say, especially before summer begins, because I know right now we, we haven't had much going on and now church is the thing to do. Well, it's getting warmer and the lake's going to be the thing to do in a few weeks and ball games and those things are going to crowd in. And so let me plead with you, get plugged in to a local church uh, and we would love to help you get plugged in here. And also ashland.church slash connect. There is a connect card online for you. Well, we're going to look at Mark chapter six, uh, beginning in verse 14 through verse 29. And as you stand in reverence to the reading of God's word, I'm going to read verse 29 to begin our time together. We gather as a people of the word. We want to hear the word. We want to apply the word to our life. We want to treasure the word. We want to remember that the word is our only hope. Because we want to live as Christ is gain. Or live as Christ and believing that dying is gain. And we see an example of that in our passage today. Here, verse 29. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Oh God, the reality is our friends and our families will one day come and take our bodies and lay it in a tomb, a coffin. And what will be our hope on that day? 
Will that be the end of our story in death? Or will it be gain in Christ? Oh God, I pray today for everyone here that as we feel the weight of those words, as we think about this prophet of God, John the Baptist, God, I pray that we would consider our lives. What are we about? And today would be a point of decision for all of us. And I pray that we would choose Christ and eternal life in him, even in the face of death. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. May be seated. I only asked him how his weekend was. I found myself before my supervisor. When I was in Bible college, I got a part-time job at a Napa Auto Parts warehouse. And I worked there every day after classes. I would go and I would work there and I would fill orders and uh, these were, this was a warehouse that sent out parts to all of the Napa stores across the nation. And that's where I worked. And I'd built a relationship with a certain guy that I worked with. And over and over, I'd shared the gospel with him. And he was, he was really close to believing the gospel or, or so I thought. His name was Sean and he was a, um, partier. I'll say that. He hit the clubs really hard every weekend. And we would talk about it every Monday, about how his weekend was. And we would have conversations about the gospel over and over and over again. And Sean was fascinated with someone who went to Bible college. He had never heard of such a thing. And he would, he would ask me questions about theology, about the Bible. He would even in the break room get me in debates with other Christians about what they would be- believe. He would say, oh, you believe in tongues? What do you believe about that? And before I knew it, we were in a debate in the break room. And so we had built this relationship and I thought he trusted me. And I, I thought that uh, he was really close to believing the gospel. And then there was one Monday... And I could tell he had had a hard weekend. And I came in and looked at him and I said, hey, man, how was your weekend? And he looked up at me and he said, never speak to me again. We were in the batteries. And he dropped a battery on a pallet and it broke. And he walked away seething mad. And before long, I was talking to my supervisor and they came and they said, Sean said he never, ever wants to work with you again. And he said, what did you say to him? And I said, how was your weekend? Really? That's all you said to him was, how was your weekend? There's got to be more going on here. And I I really could never figure out what went on in that conversation. But I did realize that from that moment on, Sean's life kind of went into a different trajectory. And I always thought maybe at that point in his life, he was at a moment of decision. What, what was he going to do with his life? Was he going to keep living for himself or was he going to believe the gospel? And my presence in his life was just agitating, was just irritating. I wasn't being a jerk for Jesus. I was just coming in every day talking to him about the gospel. I actually thought I was doing a better job sharing the gospel with him than I ever had. And yet, 
the presence of the gospel was irritating. It was agitating. And the presence and the witness of the kingdom can be agitating. We don't have to be jerks to make the gospel irritating at times. It is irritating and agitating. And if the agitation of the kingdom was ever personified, it was in the man John the Baptist. John was Jesus' cousin, the prophet of God, who was anointed by the Spirit to announce that the kingdom was at hand in Jesus. The kingdom was at hand in Jesus' flesh and blood. John was known as this bug-eating, weirdly-dressed prophet who was down by the, the Jordan River who was announcing judgment on the kingdoms of the day. Judgment because the kingdom of God had come. And so all of the kingdoms of power, all of the religious kingdoms, uh, kingdoms built up in man-made religion. John was out by the river announcing judgment on these things and saying the kingdom has come. And if you want to be saved from your sin, you have to turn from those kingdoms and turn to the kingdom of God. And he symbolized his message in baptism. In baptism, you were to turn from the kingdoms of this world. You were to turn from your sin. You were to say, I deserve the judgment of this kingdom that has come in Jesus. I deserve to be immersed in judgment. And you were to turn from those things and turn to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, as John called him, Jesus. And this was John the Baptist. And his message was irritating and agitating to a man named Herod and his family. Notice verse 14. King Herod heard of it. Now, what King Herod hears about, we see here, is Jesus. Notice, for Jesus' name had become known. Remember, Jesus, by his amazing powers... Miraculous signs and wonders and his authoritative message. Jesus has become a celebrity. When Jesus moves from town to town, there is paparazzi type reception. People are running out to see him. People are clamoring to be around him. The sick, the lame, the religious, the rebels, they are all running to Jesus and Herod hears about it. Now this is Herod Antipas, the second son of Herod the Great, who has given charge over the Galilee area. And he hears about Jesus and he is struck. He is scared. Notice why. For some say this is John the Baptist raised from the dead. Now, anytime someone is raised from the dead, there was this thought or there was the thought people could be raised from the dead to come and judge or haunt their enemies. Now that's relevant for Herod. Notice the text continues. They said that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him, Jesus. That is why. He's John the Baptist raised from the dead. But others said, no, he's Elijah, another prophet. And others says, no, he, he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. The, the, what, all, what matters is that he's a prophet. He's a man of God with this message. And God has given him great power for signs and wonders. But notice what Herod, he can't get off of this. But when Herod heard of it, he said, no, 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 no. It is John whom I beheaded. 
And he has been raised from the dead. When Herod hears of Jesus and all of these signs and wonders and this prophetic message that Jesus is declaring the kingdom is at hand, he thinks of one person, John the Baptist. And why does he do that? Because he beheaded him. He killed him. And so Herod here is haunted by his sin. And that's what the power of the kingdom present in Jesus does for Herod. It is his worst case scenario. His worst nightmare is back from the dead and has come to judge him. That's the way Herod thinks because he is guilt stricken. Verse 17. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias. Herod is the one who imprisoned John. Herod is responsible for John's imprisonment and death. Why? For the sake of Herodias, his brother's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias here, Herod's wife, had been married to Herod's brother, Philip. And one weekend, it seems, Herod had gone to visit Philip. And while he was there, he fell in love with his brother's wife. And so what did he do? He convinced her to divorce Philip and marry him. Well, Herod also had a wife. And he divorced her and married Herodias, Philip's wife. And what does John the Baptist do? Well, that's none of my business what the king does. That's his private. Now, what John does is he puts him on blast. He puts Herodias on blast. He says, that's not lawful. That it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And this became a massive story because everybody had different families that were involved. And it even caused war and controversy throughout the land. There was vengeance that was enacted in all of these families, in all of these situations. And John the Baptist stands up and says, yep, inherit it's your fault. Because it's not lawful. You broke the law. You broke God's law. And here we see the boldness of the prophet to denounce Herod publicly. He says to the king, what you're doing in your private life is unlawful and immoral. Now, he's not just condemning the cultural issues of the day or societal issues. He's condemning the person of the king for immorality. Ended a lot different for John if he had just said, that's none of my business. What goes on in the king's palace stays in the king's palace. I don't need to know anything about what he does in his private life. No, but the prophet of the kingdom stands up and says, no, that's immoral. That's wrong. And we see the essence of the prophetic voice the kingdom is to have in the world. The message of the kingdom is to be prophetic. Now, that doesn't mean it's just, we're just telling about the future. We are telling about the future. We're telling about a future king, but in kingdom and in telling about that future kingdom, we are prophetic toward the kingdoms of this world. We say the kingdom of God isn't present in the kingdom of this world. Look around and you can see it's sinful and it's immoral. And we denounce it because we stand for a kingdom that is righteous. And so we look at unrighteousness and say it is unrighteous. 
This is not the kingdom of God. And so the church must have a prophetic voice in announcing the kingdom of God that is coming. We announce the kingdom coming and we say the kingdom isn't found in the world you see now. No, we believe in a king that is faithful to his sinful bride. And so we denounce when the covenant of marriage is broken. We denounce sexual immorality as we witness the kingdom. No, we're a part of a kingdom where there is goodness in design, where there is goodness in gender. And so when we look out at the world and there's confusion and chaos when it comes to gender, we denounce it. We say that's not the way God created things. And God's going to make things right in his good kingdom. And so we witness the kingdom and we we declare what the kingdom looks like. We belong to a kingdom that, that where, where we preach a gospel of life. And so we cannot look out at a culture of death and just ignore it. Where there are thousands of babies that are slaughtered on a daily basis. We can't ignore that. Why? Because we are a part of a kingdom of life. We have a creator that has given us life and promised us abundant life. So we denounce death in the culture in which we live in. Now, the reality is most of us have no problem looking out at the world and denouncing the sins of the world. We have no problem. The things I just said, some of you are saying, amen, amen, amen. We need to have more courage on these cultural, societal issues. We have no problem doing that. The problem we have is when the kingdom becomes irritating and agitating to our own personal kingdoms. When there is a prophetic, edgy voice in our own life and we don't want the kingdom denouncing our own sin. That's the question we have to ask when we see Herodias and Herod here. How do we feel when the prophetic word comes and denounces our own sin? Our sin. In the same way, the sin of the king here must be denounced. Our sin must be denounced by the word of God. You, you understand that preaching that just denounces the world's sins, the, the, the preaching that just denounces the cultural sins, and that's all we do around here. We say the world, the world's so bad. You understand what that does to us. It creates a bunch of Pharisees and legalists here who never really understand our own sin. And so week after week, there has to be a sword that pierces our own sin. And the question here is when the prophetic word of God comes in your own life, what do you do? What do you do when the word agitates you? What do you do when the word of God puts you on blast and you become convicted about your screen time, what you're looking at online? What do you do in those moments when you're, you're irritated by it? What do you do when the Word of God comes in and, and content, condemns your self-righteousness? When you realize, I am living a life and I, I think I'm better than everyone else here because of all the things that I do around here. And if I stood before God today and He said, why should I let you into heaven you, you by nature, you, you just with a reaction would begin to recite everything you do here. And the word of God comes in and says, no, all of that is like dirty toilet paper. And you can't hold it up to the nostrils of God. 
What do you do in that moment? Oh, that, that can't be true of me. I'm really good. I'm special. Or do you turn from those things and turn to Christ? The Word of God is to be prophetic in our own life. It condemns our own sin and leads us to the goodness of the gospel in Christ. What do you do when the Word of God irritates the status quo in your life? When you, when you come and you, you hear things, even as Josh was talking about today with the offertory, and you hear that week after week and you, you, you say, I'm, I'm not giving enough. I'm not praying enough. I'm not going enough. I haven't thought about the nations enough. What do you do when the Word of God irritates or agitates your status quo? Notice what Herodias does. Verse 19. Herodias, as the prophet of God, continues to denounce her sin. She had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. The only way to stop the Word of God is to shut it up and kill it. And that's exactly what she wants to do. But notice she could not. Why? For Herod feared John. And so we're going to see some family dysfunction here. Notice he feared him because he was a righteous and holy man. He realized there there was something different about John. He was righteous. He was above reproach. There was no scandal with this man. And he kept him safe. Interesting. Locks him up in prison, but keeps him safe. Who's he keeping him safe from? Herodias. Isn't that interesting? And when he heard of him, when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Do you see what's going on in Herod's life? He's torn. He's torn between what his wife wants to do and and what he sees in John the Baptist. He doesn't want to kill him. He's a holy man. And so he goes to his prison ministry meetings. And he sits down and listens to him. And he's confused and he's torn. And here we see a man who is driven by fear. And you can only imagine the dinner conversations. Have you not killed him yet? Is he still alive? Who might you be talking about, dear? The the bug-eating prophet. He's still alive? And you're meeting with him? And you're talking with him about this kingdom? You're king. Jesus isn't king. There's not a coming kingdom. We don't need to repent of our sin. Would you not just kill him? Would you not just destroy him? And we see a king controlled by fear. Herod is a puppet of fear here. He's scared of his wife, so he cages John up. He's scared of God. So he listens to John and he's trying to play some middle ground, which is exactly what some of you are doing today. You're scared of following Jesus wholesale. You don't want to give in to this taking up your cross and following him, meaning his life is your your life is his and it's all his. Your money, your schedule, your family, it's all his. You you don't want to give into that. You're thinking about how that would disrupt your home. You're thinking about how that would disrupt your schedule. You're thinking about how that would disrupt your social life. I don't want to give in to this kingdom. It would cause a lot of disruption in my life. It would agitate things. It would shake things up. And so I don't want to flat out reject Jesus either. You know, I'm beginning to believe in this hell thing 
place. And the Bible talks about hell, eternal torment and fire. So I don't want to just turn Jesus away and reject him totally. I don't want to give up anything for Jesus. And so you just come to church and you sit and listen. You go through the motions. No really, no changes in your life. You just kind of exist around the church, folks. Exist around your family and friends that you've always existed around. You just kind of exist in a status quo. You're not going to stir things up. You're not going to order your home any different. You're not going to order your schedule any different. You're not going to do things any differently because of what you're hearing. You're just trying to coast. You're keeping the church folks happy. Think you're keeping Jesus happy. You're keeping everybody at home happy. Your friends are happy. Well, it's a facade of control in your life. And you're just like Herod. You're a puppet of fear. And you're scared. You're scared. You're scared of losing a name in the world. Instead of Jesus knowing your name in the kingdom. You're scared of losing security among friends and family. A reputation instead of gaining the security in the kingdom. You are a puppet of fear. Just like Herod, who is scared to death. And what is he scared to death of? Losing his kingdom. This kingdom John is preaching. And the only way you will make peace today is bow to the king who is Jesus and follow him. Notice the text continues. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guest. And the king said to the girl, ask of me whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask and I will give up half of my kingdom. Now Herodias here, or Herod here has a birthday party that we see very clearly turns into a Jerry Springer episode. Now this would have been a... Hugh Hefner type event. This would have been a disgusting party, but everybody who was anybody would have been at this party in Galilee. TMZ would have been there. E! News would have been there. A red carpet event live streamed through Galilee. And what Herodias does is she gets her daughter, Salome, to come in and dance for all the king's guests. Now, this wasn't ballet. And she wasn't clogging. I'll let you figure out what she was doing. And Herod is so, so amazed by his stepdaughter's dance. And he is so proud of her for her dance. And probably in a drunken stupor, he says, I'll give you whatever you want. I'll even give you half of the kingdom if that's what you want. And we see how weak sin makes you. When we would say to sin, I will give you whatever you want. Have you ever said that to the sin in your life? Have you ever said that for that one conversation that kind of gives you a buzz of emotion with someone who's not your spouse? You said to sin, I will give you whatever you want. I will give you my family. Have you ever said that to sin? 
I will give you whatever you want. I will give you my finances when you lie and fudge numbers to get what you want. Have you ever said that? You see how weak sin makes you? You see how pathetic you become in the face of sin? This is King Herod. This is a man with all power. And sin has called him to say, I will give you whatever you want. And notice what she wants. Verse 24. She went out and said to her mother, and here we see who's really in control. It is Herodias. And Herodias has been in control of Herod from the first time he saw her. He is a man driven by his lust. And she asked her mom, she said, what should we ask? Mom, I did such a great job with the dance you taught me. Now we get whatever we want. What do you want, mother? And notice the words, the head of John the Baptist. A decapitated prophet. That's what I want. The echoes of his voice in her head, denouncing her sin denouncing her immorality, denouncing her wickedness. I want his head chopped off. In verse 25, she came in and immediately, I know what we want, Herod. And with haste, running back into the king, not, notice, not half of the kingdom, not half of the kingdom, but the head of John the Baptist. And immediately with haste to the king, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Not just go kill him. I want to see his disgusting head on a platter before everybody. I want to look into the eyes of a headless man and know that he is dead. You see how disgusting sin is here? You see how wicked it can be? And notice the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oath and his guest, he did not want to break his word. Now, notice how stupid sin makes you. It would be wrong of me not to kill the prophet of God. It would be wrong of me not to behead the man announcing the kingdom of God is at hand. That would be sin. That would be wrong of me. Notice how stupid sin makes you. Herod is thinking, I am a man of integrity. I I made a commitment to my stepdaughter. And I'm pro-family. And I I have to honor her request. I am a good stepdad. And I, I have to do what my wife wants here. I keep my vows. Isn't that ironic? I keep my vows. What about the marriage vows that you've broken, Herod? But sin, listen... Sin makes you stupid. Sin makes you stupid. I could shut shut the Bible now and go home, right? You'd say, yeah, you're running out of time anyway. But sin makes you stupid. And I need you the next time you want to flip to that page on your phone. I need you the next time you want to say that thing and do that thing and act that way that you know, conscious, you know it's wrong and you're going to do it anyway, to look at your sin and say, this is stupid. And I'm a moron for doing it. Because sin wants you to, wants to convince you it's the wisest thing you could ever do. Sin at times will try to convince you it's the right thing to do. It's the holy thing to do. But sin makes you stupid. Notice verse 27. 
And immediately the king sent an executioner. By the way, here, all of his fear of John the Baptist fades with his lust. He sends for an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And then she gave it to her mother. Now, we see the disgusting nature of sin. This stepdaughter is used as a prop to get what her mother wants. And she brings the prophet's head in on a platter. A nice platter for the, for, for the king's wife, Herodias. A disgusting trophy that she hands to her mother. The same way a little child would bring up a dandelion to their mother at home. She brings the head of John the Baptist. Do you see how wicked and disgusting and perverse sin is? See the wickedness of the kingdoms of this world. But the kingdom will force your hand. It will force your hand. Believe me today, you will choose your master one day. And either it will be your sin or your savior. But the kingdom of God will force your hand. You can't cage Jesus up like a kitty cat in an animal carrier. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he will cause disruption in your life the closer you get to him. And he will force your hand. Your sin will not play nice with the authority of Jesus. It won't. Your sin's not just going to act like like. Jesus isn't there and Jesus isn't encroaching and Jesus isn't demanding something. Your sin's not just going to play nice with those things. It's going to bow up and it's going to kick back when Jesus calls you to, 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 to order your money and strategize with your money in different ways for the kingdom. Your sin is going to punch back when Jesus calls you to change your priorities at home. Okay, I'm going to go home and I'm going to pray with my family. I'm going to go home and I'm going to pray with my wife. We're going to read the Bible together. We're going to serve the church together. When you start thinking that way and feeling those ways, your sin's not going to play nice. Your sin's not just going to throw its hands up and say, okay, whatever. No, it's going to kick back. And by the way, Jesus isn't going to play nice with your sin. When you follow Jesus, he's going to demand his lordship in your life. And he's going to move in on areas you don't want him to have anything to do with. No, no, no. This is none of your business, Jesus. The things you're saying right now are none of Jesus' business are the things he's going to come after. Those are the very things he's going to demand of you when you follow him. The gospel is all of grace. It's his cross that saves us. It's his righteousness that saves us. It's his resurrection that saves us. But when you say he is king, you're going to have to prove it's true. And he's going to demand you follow him as his Lord, as your Lord. And he's going to agitate things in your life. And so here's the thing. At some point, Jesus will demand too much of you or your sin will not be enough. You're going to get to that point and you will cut ties with the kingdom or you will cut ties with Jesus. Someone will end up with their head on a platter and it's up to you. Who will it be the kingdom or will it be your sin? You will come to a point where you will have to make a decision. Notice the text continues when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This seems hopeless to The body of John the Baptist decapitated, laid in a tomb. But the disciples here prepare his body because they don't 
believe this is the end of the story. And Mark uses such language, disciples in tombs, disciples in tomb. What does that make you think of? Another group of disciples who put another body in a tomb and another group of disciples who gathered around an empty tomb. And so just the word disciples in tomb is to, is to cause our minds to race to the end of this book where there is a body that got up and got out of a tomb. And we remember the kingdom of Christ cannot be decapitated. This headless body is to remind us of the head of the church who is raised from the dead and is to give us hope. That's what Mark's doing here. He just kind of throws that in here. You see, Mark is writing to a group of Christians who are being persecuted by a man named Nero. Nero used Christians as candles at his parties. You would walk down the streets of Rome and you would look up and see your friends as street lamps. He brutally persecuted Christians. And Mark writes this gospel and he throws this story in of Herod here to remind them that the men who cut your heads off are weak and pathetic. Do not fear them. Do not fear Herodias. Do not fear Herod. They are driven by fear. They are driven by lust. But you are to be a prophetic minority in the world who does not fear because you have a Savior who's back from the tomb. You are a disciple who has a a king who has gotten up out of the tomb. Do not fear Herods. But even as we think about Herods who are driven by fear and lust, we're to think about ourselves. This story of Herod and John the Baptist, what does it teach you about you? Today, are you someone who is lunging for control? You're scared. Because you want control. But you're realizing, no, Jesus has to have control. Are you full of anger, worry, lust? Are you holding grudges against the Word of God because it's irritating, it's agitating you? Let me warn you today, doing away with the kingdom doesn't get rid of the kingdom. You can't put it away. And when you try to... Just like Herod, it will haunt you. It will haunt you for eternity. This is a kingdom that cannot be discarded. It cannot be locked up and it cannot be beheaded. And I've got good news for you here today. For those of you who would choose to follow another prophet who's back from the dead. Another prophet who got up out of his tomb. You will be haunted By hope. By hope. Because there's another man back from the dead and it's not John, it's Jesus. And when you follow him, you're haunted by hope. You gather at funerals. You gather around sickness. You gather around despair. You are persecuted. But there is the haunting hope of the gospel that pervades all of those things. And this sinful, grotesque scene reminds us of an even more grotesque, unjust scene of the cross of Christ where Jesus is punished for your sin. That is unjust. We say, no, this is unjust. The prophet of God shouldn't be killed. Well, your sin killed Jesus. And that's good news for three days later. He's back from the dead. The question for you today is, will you let, will you let the kingdom of Christ back from the tomb have the final word? Or are you the one here today saying, never 
speak to me again.